For this next part of our time together, uh, we have a number of honored guests. And just to introduce each one, we have Michelle Jones. Many of you from our church already know Michelle. She's a pastor and writer at Imago Day. Just what, half a mile from here? Yep. Something like that. How long have you been in the city, Michelle? Uh, three, three and a half years and some yes. change. Feels like longer than that, maybe just because of the imprint you've already made. Fun fact about you, uh, just to nerd out a little bit, prior to you becoming a pastor, however many years ago that was, you were an Emmy award-winning or nominated, award-winning, right? Nominated. nominated. Hey, we'll take, take whatever. You don't need to correct me on that. <laughs> writer in Hollywood, um, in particular for your work on In Living Color. So well done, and come on. And here you are, and just, um, I just feel like I need to say thank you again for your leadership in kind of the church in the city in particular over the last four or five months. There have been multiple times where you've been up leading an event that I've been at, and I've just been like deeply grateful in my spirit for your life and your leadership in our city. So we're really grateful that you would take the time to come and this is not your job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so thank you so much that you're here. Um, Once I knew Brian was here, I had to come. Yes, you had. And I did not know you two went way back. So that's, that, and you went to church together or worked together or something like that? I went to her church. Ah. No, I went to his church. There it is. Well done. Then in the back, in the COVID kind of odd setup that we have here, we have Renji Abraham, and we're kind of new quasi-friends, almost sort of. We, we were on a Zoom interview recently where we got to interview Ronald Rollheiser, who's a hero of mine. We have actually known each other for a little longer than that. I just, after that Zoom call, I was like, oh, I, we met at one thing or another, yes. but it's been fun to be in the area Yes, kind of chatting, and I just was love hearing your questions. So you are the Dean of Spiritual Life and Cultural Integration at Multnomah University, which is a new role for you, and it's really cool how those two things have been put together, and as well as for many years now, been the Associate Lead Pastor at Village how many years have you been at Village? I've been at Village 15 years. 15 years. Yeah, yeah. And you, along with Imago, I think, have been really pioneering, you know, kind of some of the work of diversity from churches that started with a white majority. And so we're really grateful for your life and your leadership as well. David Venezuela is one of our own. So from Bridgetown Church, you've been in the church a number of years now, right? With your I lovely have. wife. And you have two, you have a new daughter, right? Uh, well, I have a, a son, four months old, and my daughter's four. So yes. that's sleep regression. There, so you, true. So you're just, you're just COVID, forget COVID. You're just surviving your way through 2020. You are also the vice principal at Roosevelt High School, which Go is writers. very, what's that? Go writers. Yes. <laughs> very important work. And fun fact, you were Oregon's 2017 Educator of the Year, which is no small task. It was very fortunate. Yeah. It was a blessing. Yeah, well done. You already know Dr. Loritz and then Dr. Leroy Haynes. I just feel like I'm on holy ground uh, to have you in this room on this day. I can't, it was one of those, you know, you ever like reach for the stars and you invite somebody, you're like, they're gonna say no or have an assistant three levels down, delete your email, but you try anyway, you know? And I, you are so gracious. Thank you so much for coming here. For those of you that don't know um, Dr. Haynes, we know him here often as a longtime pastor in our city, the co-chair of the Albina Ministerial Alliance, and many other things known for much kind of political work as well as social work and church work in the city. But prior to your time in Portland, many years ago, you were a civil rights activist in Texas, served as a youth organizer in Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and as a field organizer for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is amazing. You're also the author of God's Prophet and Nonviolence, the story of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. 
And so it's really an honor to have you. Um, there was a pastoral call you know, a number of months ago where um, some leaders of color in the city kind of reached out and said, can we do a pastoral Zoom call back when Zoom calls were a thing? And now we're just like, no, I don't care what the issue is or how important it is, I'm not there. But this was early on in the pandemic and right, I think after George Floyd, Michelle was on that call, you were on that call and just hearing your wisdom and your compassionate spirit, that, that was the number one takeaway from me. So I'd love maybe just to start, before we open up the, to some questions, and in a minute I'll invite those of you in the room, there's a microphone right there, to come up and ask a question live. So if each of you would just kind of prime one question in your heart and be ready just to jump up when we open the floor in 15 or 20 minutes. But kind of just to start off our conversation, meaning your conversation and my listening, now that I've introduced you, Dr. Haynes, I'd love, you know, I'd love just to hear from you. You represent a very unique perspective because of your generation. You were, I've read about the civil rights movement my entire life. You were there, on the ground, in the streets. You lived through it. You've been living in this story ever since, and now you're living through um, in your kind of glory years, right? Now you're living through my generation's kind of historic moment, the neo-civil you know, rights movement, whatever you want to call it. What differences do you see? Well, there's a lot of similarities that I think we're, yeah. we could all name the similarities. What differences do you see between that moment and this moment? And what do we as a generation, using that broadly for my 15-year-old son who's out here somewhere up to Brian and myself, what do we have to learn from your generation? What are we missing? You know, the average age of the protester and, you know, downtown is in their early 20s or something like that. And you notice it's a youth movement and we're in a kind of ageist culture. So I'm always interested, like, what is our generation missing in this conversation? So just any wisdom or warnings or mm -hmm. slap upside yeah. the head, whatever you want, <laughs> you know? I just would well, love to hear. Well, the point of departure for the 1960s civil rights movement was built on a spiritual movement, a moral movement, yeah. a biblical movement. Uh, and the uh, initial leaders were pastors mm -hmm. and uh, ministers and uh, along with other uh, co-laborers of yeah. uh, um, laity in the churches and everything like that as well. And so the, this, this movement was based on porn and uh, the uh, Exodus paradigm. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was based upon the, uh, um, the beatitude of Jesus. It was based upon the ministry of reconciliation. And one of the things I do in my book is talk about uh, the, uh, the theology and philosophy of King mm -hmm. that was always a goal to win your opponent over. Yeah not to dehumanize your opponent, but to win your opponent mm. over to direct action mm. with the goal of reconciliation and the creation of the beloved community, a mm. community of justice and a, a community of righteousness and, and a, a, a community of wholeness mm. b b between uh, people and uh, different ethnic groups and uh, and different races and faith in the community. And so that was the goal. And so the movement itself was uh, motivated uh, by the, uh, the, the biblical principles mm -hmm. 
uh, in fact, when we would uh, meet as a, a, a teenager, when I was 12 and 13, we would march around the church before we went on sit-in demonstrations like uh, 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 Joshua uh, soldiers around the Jericho. And then we would have prayer and intercession. And then, and then we would go and do these sit-in demonstrations. Uh, and, 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 and when we were uh, in jail, we would sing those spiritual songs in jail. And, and just light up the jail and until we were let out of jail because you you know sometimes we would have different groups go on Friday and stay in jail Friday Saturday and Sunday, but education was so critically important to black parents. I don't care what you were doing, you had to get out of jail and go to school on Monday. <laughs> you know? So that that was that critical. But that movement was it was a force, and so when we. Uh, left the church to go out on demonstrating. That was a great anointing as the spirit that was upon us that we, we, we knew that whatever happened, that we would be victorious, even if it means some were beaten, uh, some were killed, that in, inevitable that this was uh, following the calling of Jesus, the following uh, the discipleship principle. And so that was the one of the major distinctions from uh, uh, the movement mm -hmm. of the civil rights movement uh, uh, and, and the contemporary movement. It, mm -hmm. it, it was church-led and church-based and, uh, and it was spirit-led. And so when we uh, fought against Jim Crow, uh, 100 years of segregation where uh, and if you experienced that as a young child, it was not only in terms in the laws of the thing, but there was a dehumanization process, and there was a fear that was placed in black people, and particularly in the South, uh, uh, that uh, you, in, in my own community of Bowman, Texas, in Southeast Texas, uh, you, the Klan will come at least once or twice a year and beat someone half to death or kill someone to remind us that we had a particular place uh, to what uh, to stay in and to keep the status quo. But but the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Spirit, anointed us to such a level that we were willing to risk our lives to make the transformation in our society. And the goal was always of Dr. King to redeem the soul of America, yeah. to transform the soul of our nation, and to create the beloved community. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Gosh. What words do you have? Obviously, that's, that's not an accurate description of the last yeah. you know, few months and years as far as the, the spiritual origin and motivation of the movement per se. What words do you have for our generation as we engage, but in a different cultural moment, you know? Well, the principle that uh, Brian talked about, we have to understand that one day uh, we have to come together as a nation and as yeah. a community 
And, and so what your goal is always in terms, uh, not to destroy the opponent in the struggle for justice and righteousness. Your goal is to win their soul over, to yeah. win their consciousness over, so that you can become reconciled with the grace of God as, as one nation and one people. And so that, that is uh, um, at some time a missing piece. The other aspect is that the, the, the movement uh, today uh, is what I call a Kairos moment. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is a moment. Now, whether it becomes a disciplined, systematic movement over a period of time is a question right. because... We, we believe that, and those who are, are veterans of the movement, that the movement is a marathon. And it's not a sprint. It's not going to be over in one year, one right. nation. Right. But it, it is a constant process that takes place for those walls to uh, come tumbling down. It reminds me of, uh, of, of Peter and his vision and Cornelius and Acts the 10th chapter. And both of them, uh, God orchestrating the vision and, and bringing them together. And, and when uh, Peter reached Cornelius' house with his servants, and, and, and he said, I have, I have come to an understanding that God has no favorite, mm. that yeah. all of us are human beings. Yeah. And, and in the question of humanity, uh, is a question that is asking a question that the character of God is justice. Yeah. The character of God is righteousness. Yes. And the God, character of God is wholeness, shalom. Mm. And so, and that is the process. And so, the third aspect I want to say about the movement now, we always had. Um, uh, Weiss in the movement uh, and others in the movement during the 60s with Dr. King. But now the multiracial generation in such quantitative masses mm-hmm. is nothing that existed wow. in the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know? Wow. Even with the few white preachers that uh, stood up in the South, many of them lost their pulpits before standing up for civil rights. But but this movement is an opportunity at that Carol's moment Mm -hmm. for the movement of God to take place. To, to bring an end to the issue of white supremacy, the issue of racism in our nation. And the question is that when we have the, the, the passion, the, the goal, and the direction to be able to achieve that, because it's not going to happen in one year. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Any other thoughts in particular from the two of you riffing on that? I don't even know how you follow that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I would not want to. You know, oh, thanks. Thank you so much, John. Hence the, what do you have to say, I, Michelle? <laughs> no, I. the thing that stood out to me the most in what you said, the two things, one is this is, I believe, a Kairos moment. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a moment for us to actually notice that, look at this stage. Yeah. You know, look at this stage. That That did not happen back then. Mm-hmm. And so we have this, we have this opportunity to actually stand up as the church and look like the church mm, as yeah. opposed to look like a group of people just 
just trying to get something said. Yeah. Um, the other thing that has just really been in my spirit a lot lately is this idea of redemption and pursuit. And when you said Dr. King was, was so adamant that he wanted to win over the heart yes. of, mm. of the other, that's, that's, where, that's where I've been. And I've been wondering a lot lately what it would look like for us as the church to actually embody that. We, we say, you know, we know, we are the Imago Dei. And part of what it means to be mm. in the image of God is that we go after the lost. Yeah. Is that we go looking for the one who's not there, that we de-other the mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. That is what it means to be the Imago mm. Dei. It doesn't stop short at, I do good mm. things yeah. and I have nice behavior. Yeah. It has to go from that. It's, it's the good Samaritan who says, I see that, I have this thing that happens on the inside of me and I go after and I redeem. And what would it look like if we as the church stood up mm -hmm. side by side, all of us different folks yeah. saying, let's, let's reach out, let's redeem. Because I think the thing that's hurting my heart the most and the thing that keeps me up at night right now is this idea that we are branding people with labels like racist mm -hmm. and white supremacist mm -hmm. and you know whatever mm -hmm. it is we're going to say about other people or neo marxist or neo marxist or socialist or, or yeah, liberal race or theory person, whatever the thing yeah. is and we label them that almost as a way to condemn them where they are mm -hmm. and declare them unredeemable yeah and i think that that flies in the face of, of yeah. who we are called to be as the people of God. Brian and I were just chatting right before this about um, a neuroscientist I was reading yesterday. It was not about race, but he was just talking about how the brain is wired. Obviously, we're social creatures. Tribal creatures would be the negative way of saying that. But the brain is wired to perceive every single person as either my people or not my people. And as long as it perceives another person as not my people, your nervous system will click into all of its survival self-defense mechanisms and you'll instantly go into fight or flight, ident tribalism, identity or whatever. And that, you know, which I think is one of the questions that some people have about critical race theory is does this sort people into not my people, not my people, not my people. And, you know, but, and the scientist was saying, the only way that you can change your brain's view of another person from not my people to my people is if you share what they call mutual mind with someone who sees them as the, his people. And I just was thinking about, you know, sharing mutual mind in science speak with Jesus, who sees people that I might, in my nervous system, might even at a subconscious level say, not my people, Jesus says, my people yeah. and what could that do to me you know so that's where i mean i just have so much hope for the few, the gospel i mean hearing you know what i mean hearing critical race theory to the gospel and how does that go forward you know so i guess the question in there is is how do we honor the differences of ethnicity and the different stories and everything that you just said while moving toward redemption in your word or not labeling in your language or beginning to see one another as my people you know? Is this for? It's for anybody, yeah. <laughs> you guys in the back, I feel like you feel like you, you know, <laughs> just because you're in the back doesn't mean you, you have to wait to chat. I'll, I'll jump in on this one. I think um, 
Well, first, it's, it's an honor to be on this stage, and, but it, I think it is a picture of having conversation. Um, and I think we need to, as we have these, um, this passion to stand for what is right, not remove the people and the relationships that are in there. And I think sometimes we are so focused on getting the thing that we want to say out there mm-hmm. that we, we are so slow to listen. Yeah. Um, and, and what you just said, we are, we are trained in our minds to look at people and categorize them. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I think in the church, we use the word unity and we think of it as sameness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to erase um, the differences that are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes, I, I loved how you said it earlier, colorblindness is a statement for the privileged. Mm-hmm. Um, because when someone says they're colorblind to me, and I've heard it so many times, what it says to me is you're erasing a part of who mm-hmm. I am. Right. Uh, that you can't actually see, and I can't actually share my experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so uh, Dr. Nijay Gupta, a theologian in the area, is uh, someone who, who taught me this. Instead of when you're seeing uh, unity, think of harmony. Yes. And, and when we think of harmony, the point isn't everyone singing the same note. It's actually, we need different notes to be sung. Mm-hmm. There are some times when someone's off tune. And it's our, our, our point to, you know, you it's our- don't that, just we, come visit church on Sunday morning. <laughs> and, and we come and in love and gentleness, help them yeah. get tuned, but we're singing the same song. Yeah. And it doesn't erase the differences. And so how do we create a context where experience is, is heard and we're moving forward together? And in this moment, what we're seeing is a, a part of the body is hurting, yeah. is crying out. How do we listen first? And then how do we take the privilege uh, and move towards them first and then together try to address this issue? Yeah. And I think this is a beautiful example of that. Mm. And I think, thanks. I thank you for sharing, especially the, the notion of colorblindness, because I, as an administrator, especially in Portland Public Schools, and I, I, I serve one of the most diverse yeah. student bodies, probably in all of Oregon, besides another high school. But largely, most of my teachers are white, so sometimes I have to have conversations um, about dispelling some of these beliefs. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's a very important. Sometimes you got to move slow to go fast sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think we have to be thoughtful. Um, yeah, not, not only we have to be thoughtful, but we have to have an intentionality where our heart posture is open. And you, you might not see eye to eye, but there's going to be a period of calibration that you're having in terms of your thoughts, your feelings, and your, and your posture. And I think there is a moment where you can have a, a real level of catharsis that moves uh, forward. So I think, yeah, mm. yeah, just some yeah, thoughts. Well said. You know, one clear difference between, tying into what you're saying, between the civil rights movement and now is secularization, per what you just said. Another very clear difference is social media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Social Dilemma documentary, which you have not seen that, that's what you're doing tonight, right? Just any spiritual authority I have, I don't really have much, but go watch it. Um, but, you know, it's, I think, top in the US right now, which is really encouraging. But much of this movement is being played out in hashtags and on social media. And that's a very different space than this space. You know, when, you, when it's had through the lens of clickbait rather than through the lens of relationship. 
So any just, I'd love to hear anything, any opinion, dialogue, thoughts that you guys have. And in particular, I'm, I'm listening with the ear of, you know, what are best practices for us as followers of Jesus, you know? I think, I think currently, outrage is the new counterfeit of power. Mm. You know, when people Whoa. are angry and they just react, that's, that's, they feel like that's power. Mm-hmm. And they feel like that's powerful. Mm-hmm. And again, I think the important thing is, is for the church to actually stand up. Look, at the end of the day, the only power lies have is that they look like the truth. And as long as we are silent, then lies are going to allow, they're going to be allowed to stand. So if we actually know what real power actually is, and we function according to that real power of whether it's, whether it's suffering love or forgiveness or truth-telling with love, whatever the thing needs to be in the moment, if we act in that, then what happens is then we're able to actually be a prophetic voice in the world. So now we've got social media all over the place now. It's like there's so many ways to say. There's so many ways to tell the truth. And that's what people are thinking. Well, if it comes out of social media, it must be true. If it comes comes out of Instagram, well, it must be true. You know, so so we see all of that. And we see all of this yelling and all of this, all of this, this vitriol and all of this, just people are uncivil and they're mean and, so I'm, I'm wondering, and one of the things I recently just kind of posted and just kind of put out there on, on my uh, Facebook page was, was I asked those of us who call ourselves believers, can you be more considerate and intentional about what you put out there yeah. in social media? Because the truth of the matter is, is as long as you're just getting somebody told, getting something said, screaming and yelling, canceling somebody, calling other people to cancel other people, as long as that's all you're doing, then you've pretty much sold your piece of the gospel to the lowest bidder. Wow. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Keep that going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think that there has always um, been anger and... um, and when people are oppressed and exploited uh, uh, and discriminated against, mm-hmm. the difference that in, uh, in the past civil rights movement, uh, that anger w- was mediated by uh, love. It was a mediation of, yes. of, of love. Uh, Dr. King, when 63, when the Four of the girls in Birmingham were bombed and killed. Yeah. Um, it, it was a setback with us, and, and it took a, uh, it, it just threw it almost a knockout punch yeah. uh, to us, you know, in Sunday school. Uh, Four of the girls bombed by the Klan. And for those, for those that don't know that, yes. four girls, am I right? Well, yes, memory, yes. And one was even decapitated uh, by yes. it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a great tragedy. Killed in Sunday school. And, and the immediate response of the, the uh, community was yeah. to express that anger. Yes. But Dr. King, with the nonviolent direct action and the philosophy of... Uh, that took place 
was able to understand that we, we need power, but power need to be mediated always by love. Mm. And, and that to transform that anger into righteous anger. And there's a difference between because a righteous, a holy anger is anger that is going to not be vindictive, yeah. but it's going to try to achieve a goal. And that goal is to continue to push the movement and to push justice, uh, but do it in a manner that which will achieve what? Winning your opponent over and what? Uh, transforming the American culture mm-hmm. and bringing an end to Jim Crow and segregation. Wow. And so it, it, it was uh, the leadership understood that at the end of the day, as my brother uh, spoke about the uh, um, truth and reconciliation in South Africa, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the goal has to be that to realize that Oh, if we're going to continue to exist, if we're going to continue to be a community and nation, we must come together at a common table Mm. and with a common place and a common vision. And for Dr. King and the lieutenants, that was in terms of the creation of the beloved community Mm -hmm. as a a way of saying that... uh, the kingdom of God is manifesting itself in this interim. Yeah. In the beloved community. Yes. Mm, the beloved community sounds a lot better than Twitter, you know? Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Brian, but, and, yeah. But I want to say this there's a positive thing and a negative thing about social media. The positive thing is that we had to hand out le- leaflets in front of the door to So, 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 you know, back then, you, you know, you had to do it. But, uh, but it created relationships because you had to talk to people face to face and organizing. You had to wow. persuade people face-to-face organizing, wow. and, it, and it'd be a relationship. And, they, and so you're able to uh, touch more people now through social mm-hmm. media. But at the end of the day, I believe this as a professional organizer in the movement, that you're still going to have to do some relational building yeah. if you're going to have continuity uh, with issues of justice and the creation wow. of beloved community. Mm-hmm. Wow. Brian, any thoughts on that, specifically on social media? Just, you know, your dad, you got three, you got one kid in college and two high school boys. You know, this is work you do. You know, you've, you've done this work before social media and after, and now you're fathering three digital natives, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I think people, and rightly so, you know, well, how can we really get down the field on this? Yeah. And um, I don't think social media is, is the best way to do it. But, you know, there's three institutions God has created to deal with the problem of sin in the world. The first is the family. Then it's the government. Then it's the church. Hmm. 
And I think all three of these institutions have got to be moving in lockstep wow. if we're going to really see. So when we talk about the family, you know, too often I think we look at discipleship as merely kind of spiritual. Mm-hmm. Let's teach our kids how to pray, how to have a good quiet time, share your faith, what yeah. life in the spirit looks like. All that's great. But we, we don't just give them a robust soteriology. We have to give them a robust anthropology. Yes. So, and a part of that is the Imago Dei, mm-hmm. and here's how we treat people, and you know, we nip that stuff in the bud. Yeah. You know? So I say to my white brothers and sisters all the time, part of what that means is we gotta learn to create awkward moments, <laughs> right? When Uncle Bob, Thanksgiving, says the racially insensitive thing, create yeah. the awkward moment yeah. and nip that in the bud. So there's mm-hmm. the family piece of it, right? And I, I could talk forever about that, just even teaching my kids to drive young men of color. And the first lesson is not here's the gas, here's the brake, but it's what to do when you get pulled over by a cop. Gosh. Because I need you to come home safe. When we we talk about the talk, that's the talk that that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, The next institution is the government, right? And uh, I gotta be careful how I thread this, but I think we 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 can agree that the kingdom of God does not fit neatly into any political party. Yeah. Okay, so we can, mm-hmm. we can exhale yes. on that, we right? We can agree on this, so, yes. Um, but to not be political is to be political, right? So if you're living during Jim Crow and you're not being political, you're saying I'm fine with the status quo. Mm-hmm. So you should be involved. Um, but I don't think the scriptures allows us to a la carte our social issues. Yeah. Right? So show me anyone who's passionate about life in the womb, but is apathetic about that same life outside the womb. I'll show you someone who's pro-birth and not pro-life. Yeah. So to be pro-life means I care about life, as Tony Evans says, from womb to tomb. Yeah. Right? And so we utilize government and we try to... But the last one is the church, right? That, that new humanity and coming together and... Um, you know, sanctuaries should reflect dinner tables. They do reflect dinner tables. So if I want a multi-ethnic sanctuary, I got to have a multi-ethnic dinner mm, table. Wow. And now that's where we're getting into relationship. Mm-hmm. And Larry Acosta says we, we hurt in isolation, but we heal in community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And having community with the ethnically other is just huge, yeah. right? So every time I want to otherize white people, and just demonize them. The spirit will bring up Adam and Nikki Anders, the Swedish couple we vacation with every year, or Bobby and Heather Conway. Not just and, white, Swedish. Right, right, know? right. White, 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 white. So, um, white where you pronounce the H, white. <laughs> right, right. But we need those relationships. Yeah. You know, so I, you know, I know it's not a sexy solution, but the best thing you can do coming out of this is just get into a relationship with someone who's wow. who's different. So mm. and eat together. Yep, eat together. That sounds like something Jesus yep. did. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard and it's messy, but yeah. it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd love to hear from. I feel like you guys are in the back. I don't know why. Oh, yeah. It's just a COVID chair thing, you know. 
Um, you know, obviously the majority of the conversation at a national level has been around Black Lives Matter for the last few months. And people of color, we often put all sorts of different ethnic groups together, and there's a reason for that. Um, but yet at the same time, each ethnic group has its own experience. Each man or woman is a soul and has its own experience. I'd love to hear from you as brown men. You're an Indian American. You're Latino. I'd love just to hear about what's missing from this conversation or what even anything you would like just to share and speak into our community tonight. David, especially you, maybe just to start with, not especially you, but just to start with you, you are a member of our church, you know, just what, what do we need to hear from you? You know, I think for me, I have a couple of, I guess, wonderings, I guess, like for me, I feel like the spirit is speaking to me, is like, what is my role, both at, uh, at the church, but also at the institution I'm serving as in public school, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of how do I get my black and brown, my BIPOC students? Because uh, they're going to these marches. Like, I mean, they're not just early 20s. They're in their 15, 16, 17, 18. They're, they're going out. Mm-hmm. And how do I, I worry. I mean, like, how do I keep them safe? Because I get a report, I get an email saying, hey, this person just got arrested. Like, like uh-oh, I got to, like, make a phone call. This is not going to be, this is like, I'm going to have to reach out to the community figure this out. So for me, for me, that's weighing really heavy in my heart. Wow. And almost in a parental kind of way. Yeah, almost. Yeah. Because like, they're like my extended family. Like I come from Jersey, which is Jersey slash New York city. So it's like pretty darn diverse. So like Roosevelt for me, is like an extension of my family because I, Hmm. most of my family is in New Jersey. And then my, my wife's Italian, Swiss, and they live in Savi Island. The in-laws live in Savi Island, so I love them, but they're also, they don't look like me, right? Yeah. So, um, and then also, like, what is my involvement in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement here being that it's so um, secular? Yeah. Um, because it's, you know, from what you were saying, I feel like the civil rights movement from before was, was there was almost a home base and it was a church. Mm-hmm. Right, and so h- how do we navigate that in terms of what is our role as a church, right, and, yes. and also as members of the church in, in navigating the, this movement, right, which is very young, it's very secular. Um, I don't have a right answer, but yeah. you, you know, just those are my wonderings. Yeah, yeah. and maybe that's just honoring the question. You yeah, know, we were chatting at lunch today about you know, Black Lives Matter, the official organization, which is different than the movement and the hashtag, you know, has officially stated one of their goals is to abolish the nuclear family, you know, so that's not our goal as followers of Jesus, you know, but racial justice is. So how do we engage and not, you know, I think it's easy to use that to just fear comes up, you other, and then you just write the whole thing off. Well, I just don't want to be involved if it because of this, that, or the other. Right, because the, you know. And that's not right. Yeah, because like the Black Lives Matter movement, sorry, and this is, um, I think they're pretty much highly coupled. When you say someone like, I am, I totally support Black Lives Matter, like to someone who's like, I don't know, someone maybe may conservative off the of Savi Island farm or somewhere, they, they, they think like, I want to abolish like the nuclear family and all this stuff. And, yes. and that, that they just, fill it in. Yeah, know, they, they the fill stuff. it in. And, it's, mm-hmm. and, and you can certainly support Black Lives Matter. And every, you know, I, I support all my students, but at the same time, you know, those are not highly coupled, the ideology, also the movement, you know? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah. But 
add something. I, yes. I certainly Anytime you want, with no apology. I'm going to use the example of the bridge here, okay? Mm-hmm. And they, instead of them waiting for a, uh, a spiritual movement to yeah. be created, the bridge gathered together in accessory prayer. Yes. And began to what? Uh, circle around the city and yes. intercessory and begin to express themselves that we are a part of this movement from a spiritual mm-hmm. level and this is the way we're going to uh, express and this is the way we're going to show our commitment towards uh, that black lives this matter mm-hmm. and, and because you did that you engage the community, and uh, and people begin to wonder, well, where did these people come from? They mm-hmm. are out here, engaged, walking, and moving around the city, and making an impact mm-hmm. on that spiritual level. This is what your church did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now I'm thinking about pray, pray on MLK for those of you that were there. And you leading us and praying over us, and how many cars drove by me and said, "What are you doing?" You know, it just didn't fit the didn't fit the stereotype, maybe. Of yeah, hmm. well done. Thank you for that, Renji. Anything you want to add before I'm going to open it up to the crew in a second here? Yeah, um, I do want to say that as an Indian American, uh, I'm a son of immigrant parents. Uh, coming here, my parents' mentality is to not stand out. Right, it's it's to be quiet, to somehow assimilate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a, as someone who's born and raised here in Portland all of my life, yep. uh, I'm I'm recognizing in a posture of learning like, that Indian Americans and people of all different colors have made progress because of the work and the energy of the black community, hmm. be- wow. because that of the efforts that they have done throughout the years, they are making avenues for so many others. Wow. And when you look back at the history, right, uh, America will shift its attention to different people groups who they see as a threat. And I think the work yeah. that we're doing now is so vital so that as we look forward, who becomes the next threat? The work we're doing right now gives us the ability as a church to stand together and learn how to, when the, when the tides shift and there is someone else that is new mm-hmm. uh, who is going to be in pain, how mm-hmm. do we begin to stand with them? Uh, the other thing that I would say is uh, being a pastor in Portland uh, for 15 years at a church that is trying to be multicultural. And I use that language. That's our tag. We're a multicultural church. We're trying because it, it's hard work. It yeah. takes time and energy. But um, mm. I remember 10 years ago where uh, friends in seminary, as I was in conversations, they would, oh, you're, you're missing the gospel. This work on diversity, the, it, it wasn't just a bad word now. Yeah. It was seen as, oh, you're, you're, you're off-center of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that we see the work when it comes to diversity is the natural outflowing of the gospel. Yes. It, it is this place of a table where all people are welcomed. And, and when we divide it, then we're actually playing the same language that is not of the church. But the fact that gospel and all people are welcomed in 
is so vital. It, it's what is coming off the pages in the yeah. New Testament. Yep. And I think we have to put a new lens through which we read the scriptures mm -hmm. from the beginning all the way to the mm -hmm. end. And what we'll see is what's happening today is actually not, not new. Yes. That's right. It's just taking a new kind of form, yes. but we'll see it off the pages. Um, four years ago, 2016, there was an article written in the Atlantic, Portland's the whitest yep. city. Yeah, we all read that. What, like, what? And, and what's, the, what's the funny thing if is... I've not read that, by the way, read it. You should read it. Yeah, The Racist History of America's Whitest yeah, City or something like that. Yeah, what's funny about it is a lot of the pastors that I engage with um, just read the title instead of actually reading the article and go, oh, so we don't actually have to do work on diversity. We're, mm -hmm. we're white, so we don't have to. Right, But when you look around Portland and you ask the question, why is it white? Yes. And then you open your eyes, mm -hmm. actually, it was engineered. I, I, actually within public schools, we're really diverse. Yeah. Within Gresham, within Washington County, there's a lot of people of color. And, and I think we have to open our eyes, and especially for white evangelical who's been so passionate about missions, We've done a lot of learning about how we've gone wrong when it comes to missions. We gotta come mm -hmm. in a posture of listening, learning, yes. empowering. How can we not apply that to our own to our local own communities, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So how do we yeah. open our eyes to see that there are pastors and communities that have been here for 24 mm -hmm. years and beyond? At it. Mm -hmm. And how do we begin to build partnerships to where we're not just so siloed, but where we are creating this table of, of different ethnic churches coming together to love and to serve our city. Because the church, when we come together, can be that beacon of light that the gospel and the New Testament speaks of, yeah. to shine the light and the love of Jesus. Yeah. Well done. I'm so grateful for the work that all of you have done in this area already. We have so, we have so much as a church to follow your example in. Let's um, just take a few questions live. So there's a microphone right there. If you would just pop up, it's first come, first serve, make a line six feet apart. And if you'd keep your mask on, that would be very helpful for germs and such. And anyone, um, we'll just take a few moments to answer some questions live. Ask anything within reason, you know. Sorry, not to scare you. Not everybody at once. Come on, there we go. Hi. Oh, that's loud. Hi. Uh, yeah. I'm Alex. Hi, Alex. Hi. Um, so my question is, um, I am someone uh, who identifies as biracial. Um, I'm half Korean, half very white, um, and <laughs> Swedish I, or yeah. <laughs> Virginia, Virginian. Um, but uh, I, I have found that it is definitely a double-edged sword, where mm. you get to enjoy all the privileges of being white and being Asian, um, but at the same time, it feels like you don't really fit into anybody's kind of box of what you should be. Um, so my question for all of you is, um, what do you perceive to be the role of biracial or multiracial people in this racial climate? And um, what kind of advice can you give to, um, to us when it comes to identity? That's a great question. Yeah, I want to say, um, my brother, your dad, uh, 
you have to make a personal choice on your own identity. First of all, the identity of being uh, a Christian above all uh, culture, all ethnic group. I, I am uh, first of all a believer in Jesus Christ. My Christian identity is number one, and then um, after that, I um, my family identity, and then after that, my uh, uh, cultural identity and the nation identity. But you have to make a decision yourself, a personal uh, decision, as to uh, whether you want to be um, uh, by identify yourself as biracial or you want to identify yourself there uh, with one group or the other. But always keep at the essential and at the center that's above all. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. Hmm. Yeah, this is a, um, this is a very crushing um thing for Corey and I as parents as, we, as we're dealing with our kids on this because, you know, our kids are half African-American, a quarter Irish, a quarter Mexican. And so one of the things Corey and I always felt like we needed to do is, and, and our kids are so different, like my youngest, you know, he's in that whole basketball scene. So if he walks in a room, 100 people, 99 white, one black, him and that black person are going to be the best friends. You know, and my other two kids are completely different. So, but what happens though, and I think it's not just biracial, but biracial when there's African-American thrown in, is we raise them and we expose them to all their different ethnicities. But then there comes a point when they realize, ooh, I don't really have a choice. When the African-American thing gets thrown in, because no matter how they see themselves, they feel like they have to conform to how society will see them. So it's almost like having the, the police driving conversation where I, I literally have to say to them, I hate to tell you this, you may see yourself as, but when you get pulled over, here's how they are going to see you. And that's a really really hard conversation to have. And it's almost like you can see the, the wheels turning because they're realizing, I don't have a choice. Now again, that's my case, triracial with African-American thrown in. My guess is for the brother who just asked that question, that may be a different reality. Mm -hmm. But from my vantage point, that's a very hard thing to tell my kids, you're seen as a black person, and here's what comes with that. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, I appreciate you sharing that. My, my kids, biracial, yep. 11 and 7, they um, pick and choose yep. when it's beneficial for them. Oh, I'm, I'm Indian, and I, you know, this is really good for me. Oh, I'm not, I'm not Indian in this situation, you know? And, and when it's positive, they, like, they can experience that. But... I know, like as you're talking, even being Indian, there are times where you don't get to choose right. and you're, I'm facing this right now as a person in my 30s. What's my history? When 9-11 happened, 
And I was trying to be patriotic as a college student going, yes, my, my nation was attacked. My parents came and talked to me and said, people won't look at you and say, this is your nation. Yep. You got to be careful when you're walking out at night. Yep. And so there are going to be moments where your ethnicity is going to be placed on you. And, and, and what does that mean? It means that you continue to walk in grace and in love first as a follower of Jesus but you are gonna have opportunities to speak into different conversations. Some are gonna be painful, but out of that pain, you'll be able to speak into what does it look like to be a place where you can have these kinds of conversations yep. and lead in, in, with love. Yeah, well said, thank you for that. Let's take another question. Hi there, uh, my name is Colin. Um, my question is, where do you start with white friends who are in denial about the present realities of racism and privilege? Or even to Dr. Haynes' words, how do you begin to win them over? Like, where, where do you even start where people yeah. are in that place? What's common at the table, you know, and many instances I can be getting my oil change in a car. And I can just... Uh, Say, um, do you like football, <laughs> basketball? <laughs> and so that, to make that connection, and then you move that connection to the next level, because God always provides an opportunity for witness. Mm. Uh, but he also gives you the opportunity to make that connection uh, of trying to connect where the person is. And then sometimes even talking about uh, athletics can be a, uh, a common conversation. Uh, what's the best art at the art change business, you know? Uh, I, I do think you, you can start light and then go into something more deep, deeper level uh, you'll find that in those connections and those dialogues that people will open up a lot better. I'm surprised how much people talk uh, in terms of opening up uh, to a stranger that they never know uh, and, and just begin a conversation. But that conversation, and then you got to also remember uh, and what we call raising the consciousness of a person, uh, this mm. discipleship of a person, that you didn't start off knowing everything <laughs> on that conscious level, but you, you grew over mm. a period of time. Wow. And so you have to always remember that all of us don't grow at the same rate or mm. the same level. But just getting people started to begin to reflect on the process. Uh, I, I grew up with um, a lot of races uh, in my community. And, uh, but one of the things I found out, uh, there's a commonality that exists among people, even between the oppressed and the oppressor. There are some common human traits Everybody wants to have a nice family. Everybody wants to uh, be able to take care of their children. 
everybody wants to have an opportunity to have the um, best for their kids. And, and so there are some common things that we can address, but always remember that you may be at another level, but you got to step down and reach the person that is not quite there yet. Hmm. I would also, I would also just add uh, that Please I do because I get asked this a lot, and it's disheartening to hear that it's a problem. You know. Well, well, I think I think first and foremost, you kind of have to decide what your goal is. Is your goal to change their mind, or is your goal to love them? And mm. so when I'm having a conversation with somebody who's genuinely struggling, that's a different conversation than someone who just wants to win an argument. Right. And so sometimes... And kind of their mind's already made up. Absolutely. If your mind is made up and you just want to win an argument and you just want to fight with me, I'm just going to say, you win. You know, and uh, when I was younger, I would just say, no, I must destroy you. <laughs> but, and I bet you did. But I'm thinking now I'm going to need these breaths when I'm 95 and dying, so I'm going to save them. <laughs> and I don't, I don't spend a whole lot of time arguing unnecessarily. But right. if you genuinely want to love your friend and you realize that what they're struggling with is going to ultimately affect just kind of how they live their lives. Love is first patient. And so you, you really have to make the decision that I don't want you to just believe, accept, and run forward with, and agree with me with this information. I want to love you. And I think that when we lead with love, then people are more inclined to listen when they realize that what you're not saying is you are horrible and you need to get that fixed. When they realize you're not actually saying that and what you are actually saying is, I love you. It goes back to that idea of redemption and pursuit. You know, and, and so that's, that would be the thing that I would add. Mm. Yeah, well said. Brian, anything to that? Yeah, I would, um, I mean, it really all, it comes back to love. I mean, I think there's some practical things maybe in addition, like in a loving environment and relationally. Yeah, like have a coach and answer to that. You yeah, know? yeah, so we could, I mean, I mean, there's books we could read together. I think The Color of Law is just a phenomenal book mm -hmm. when it gets to systemic racism and it's after effects. So it really looks at the housing deal and how that, white fragility. I mean, you could just, all kinds of stuff you can just journey through together. Um, but if you're really trying to get to understanding, I think they'll want to educate themselves and hash these things out relationally and ask really good questions and be in a posture to actually receive some things as well. So mm, well said. Yeah. That was, I was thinking also just address the resistance. Yeah. Like, like what is that resistance about? Sometimes the resistance isn't about the thing. Right. Sometimes it's about something very different. And yep. in being in relationship with a person, yep. you find out those kinds of things mm -hmm. as you learn together yep. and as you walk together. And in my experience, most of the time it's rooted in fear. Yeah. It might come off as bravado or, you know, um, but most of the time there's a fear under there. So I wonder if you can, if you can discern and love, not in a sneaky way, but what is that fear? And how do I help put that at ease in order to, to create a space where somebody can 
can settle into reality, you know? Let's take one more question before, a few internet questions, and then we'll, um, we'll take a break. Or not? Fidel, thanks. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Fidel Ferrer, and I am considered, or I identify myself as an Afro-Latino. I'm from Cuba. Um, one of the things that struck me with the whole um, Black Life Movement and the murder of Joy Floyd, and right after that, it was, uh, that led to a lot of um, anger and hate and pain from our brothers and sisters, especially in the black community. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm kind of like really nervous because I kind of like, I resonate with that a lot. Um, but yet, I felt as I was watching the news and doing a lot of media kind of information, uh, because I didn't grow up in this culture, meaning that all of the, the hate and for a 400 years of, of, of uh, being in, in that level of, of uncertainty and pain, um, I was not able to experience. We were able to experience in Cuba as a communist country, there is a different you know, hate uh, against the government, oppression, but we all found the common ground and we all come together as, as, as you know, common union. That's what community um, kind of like I think to believe that, that stand for, um, for the same purpose of being in community. So when, when I saw those uh, videos of rioting and destroying businesses and things like that, I felt in my heart that, that um, that's not what we want. That was not what I, as a black man in this community, want to be viewed as. And uh, I went on, on, on um, kind of like rants of, of how am I going to put all those feelings of hate and pain and, and distrust from, from my white uh, friends, which I happen to have a lot here, especially in Portland, Oregon. Um, <laughs> and, and my question to you guys is, is to uh, what are some resources or some practices that you guys have experienced or have done in the past when all what you have inside your bones, it's that hate and pain and that hurt uh, from, from the white supremacists, from, from our systematic you know, racism, uh, because I believe, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm um, really, really in my core, believe that, uh, that that's not the answer. Violence is not gonna be the answer for, for, for a long-lasting effect. Uh, a long-lasting effect of like, healing and being able to kind of like gather and come together as in union, you know, mm -hmm. as once I was in mm -hmm. my country, in, 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 in my community. Mm. Thank you for that. Well, of course we're all looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all I know is Dr. Uh, Haynes for President uh, 2020, uh, you know? Uh, <laughs> I just Haynes want to um, Paul says in Ephesians, he says, be angry and sin not. Yeah. Deal with your anger before the sun go down, you know. I part of being human is to get angry at time. But the question becomes how are you going to channel that anger 
to produce what you really want to produce, and that is a, a just, equal, and righteous society that you live in. And historically, there have always been uh, struggles from uh, 1619, as Brian has said, and there have been uh, different uh, tactics, uh, different uh, strategies on how to achieve freedom, justice, and equality. Um, sometime during slavery, they, the only way that they could achieve was through running away or revolting against the uh, uh, slave master. Um, but one of the things that Frederick Douglass, one of the great abolitionists, and also a great spiritual leader. If you ever have opportunity, read uh, the uh, new uh, autobiography by Blight on uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh, he knew, in a sense, that even though John Brown, who was a great white evangelical uh, anti-slavery, Frederick always believed that uh, ultimately we were going to have to hold the nation together. And that's why he did not uh, believe in just uh, creating colonies and sending the ex-slaves there, but to hold the nation together. And the goal uh, that he struggled with is that uh, for the African-American population to become a part of America because their blood and sweat and tears mm -hmm. was, had already laid the foundation of the nation. As a strategy going on right now, and it's always in terms of uh, what is the best tactic and the best strategy to achieve the goal of transforming society and to make a better, more perfect union. I believe that that is through nonviolence and direct action that we can keep the nation together and that the nation would not fall apart. And that ultimately at the end, uh, when all is done, if we're going to survive, uh, if we're going to be a better people, more human, humane people, we have to find avenues and ways uh, to learn, first of all, how to respect each other, how to love each other, and how to treat each other as a human being. My, my strategy and tactics, uh, and I've been at this a little while, <laughs> is that how am I going to achieve the goal of police accountability? How am I going to achieve the goal of uh, eliminating discrimination? How am I going to achieve the goal of uh, creating a society where everybody is free and just? And, and I believe that the best way to do that is not to violence or vengeance, but the best way to do that is to uh, direct nonviolent action that will go that is motivated by love and the goal of reconciliation. You know? And that struggle and that conversation will go on 
I believe that we have achieved more through this civil rights movement and in the leadership of Martin Luther King, and that it not only has spread it in America, but it has spread it in Europe and Africa and Asia. The tactics here in Tiananmen Square, when the revolt against Chinese authority then, what did you hear? We shall overcome. Yeah. And Poland, what did you hear? We shall overcome. In East Germany, what did you hear? We shall overcome. And so a movement that started here in America will ripple across the whole world. And I, I, I believe that that is a way to, uh, to create a more perfect union, you know. But I also want to make you aware that those that were using violence uh, downtown in different places were a very small percentage of people. Usually that's a uh, range from 200 people. There have been demonstrations downtown where there's 5,000 people or more. Yeah. And so the overwhelming majority of the protests have been nonviolent. But if you're going to win the citizens over who are going to help create police accountability who are going to help create a more perfect. You got to win them over, not by fear or not by retaliation, but with love and good reasoning. Mm. Amen. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and to piggyback on that, I think, I think the love that he's talking about is it makes us brave. It makes us courageous. It makes us understand that there's too much at stake for us to keep being silent as the church. I mean, we have so much to say that is unusual and unsaid in our country, particularly in this you know, era of social, mm-hmm. you know, social media and all of this stuff. You know, the, the, the Germans have a, have a made up word. It's, it's Vergangenheit bewaltergung. And it's, it's a word, it literally means to master the truth. Wow. And so, and to master your past. And they made this word up to be able to talk about right. how they talk about the Holocaust mm-hmm. and, and that whole part of their history. And a big part of, I think, the church is going to involve us being willing to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Being willing to tell the truth, but not stop at telling the truth. Tell mm-hmm. the truth to the end that people are able to look at this church of truth-telling human beings mm-hmm. and, and be able to tell the world you don't have to be afraid of the truth yeah. or the consequences of the truth yeah. and to own with humility that while we may know the truth, we don't necessarily know the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So we have patience with one another mm-hmm. as we walk through all of this stuff yeah. and, and unpack all of this stuff. But if, if the world sees us, Jesus said, if the world sees the oneness of us as we unpack this, they will believe, Father, that you sent me. Yeah. And I think that we're holding back the gospel from the world yeah. when we don't function yeah. with truth and love at the same yeah. time. Gosh, that's aspirational. I think we're about ready for breaks. So let me just ask one internet question in honor of all of you watching online. There's a number of questions that say something to the effect of this one verbatim. How do we take steps toward becoming a multicultural church in a predominantly white region? I don't think every church should be multi-ethnic. I think every church should 
have a passion to reach its geographical location. And, you know, if you're in Compton, you're not going to be multi-ethnic. If you're in sections of North Dakota, you're probably not going to be multi-ethnic. But the, the driving thing should be we want to reach all of wherever that place may, may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what Dr. Corey Edwards says, the average community that a church sits in is 10 times more diverse than that church. And the average schools in the community that the church sits in is 20 times more yes. diverse. So by and large... Is that because the younger you go, the more diverse the country is? You know, I'm not sure. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't go. She, she's an Ohio State, the Ohio State University uh, professor. <laughs> she killed me. Uh, Jesus-loving woman. Um, but uh, yeah, she didn't drill down into those Got it. details. But the point is, once again, the church is lagging yeah, behind. behind significantly. So, but then we can press into, you know, if you really want to be a multi-ethnic church and the location lends itself to that, now we have to deal with leadership. Yeah. What does the leadership look like? Now we're getting issues of power. Yeah. And this is a major, st- there's a recent NPR article that came out, and I hate it because it's true. Once a church becomes uh, at least 50 50, whites begin to leave in mass. Mm-hmm. And, and the theory in the NPR article is power. Wow. So, you know, Bishop Ulmer and I are talking because mm-hmm. Inglewood's gentrifying. Yeah. And it's this large black church, and Bishop Ulmer's going, where are the models of minority homogenous churches that have become multi-ethnic with an influx of whites who are now going to say we are, instead of planting churches in a gentrifying community, we're actually going to find existing churches and follow black leadership. Mm -hmm. That's not there. Mm. That's not in the community. Last thing I'll say is read Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. Phenomenal book written by Reggie Williams. Bonhoeffer, when he's 21, yeah. prodigy, graduates with his PhD, goes to Union. This is, this is Harlem, 1930s. Union's a part of Columbia. He goes there. He, he would say, in hindsight, I wasn't a Christian, but I thought I was a Christian. And because I thought I was a Christian, I was trying out all these churches, um, white churches. He goes, but I didn't really hear the gospel and all of its glorious dimensions there. So he ends up joining the Abyssinian Baptist Church, which is a black church still in existence today, Harlem. You know what he learned is the phrase cheap grace? He didn't come up with that. He got it from his black pastor, Adam Clayton Powell. Wow. So he follows black leadership, teaches a Sunday school class there, befriends a guy named Albert. Albert turns him on to Negro spirituals, which he takes back with Mm -hmm. him. They go on a, a trip down to the Jim Crow South in the 1930s, Here's the point. Bonhoeffer says, I do not go back to Germany and stand up for the oppressed unless I first see the gospel to the oppressed at the Abyssinian Baptist Church. What changed him wasn't just reading a book, but it was immersing himself as a minority, Mm. following minority leadership that had a transformative impact on his life. That's a narrative most whites don't have. Yeah. Most whites do not 
immerse themselves as minorities to follow minority leadership. And it's could be a power thing. Yeah. So. Gosh. Sorry to bum you out. No. That was one of those. I'm just going to set that out there for you. Michelle, any thoughts as we as we close? You know, you and Imago have been doing this work, and in this city and right around the corner. You know, any thoughts? I mean, obviously the leadership one is, I mean, 110 percent. Yeah, I, uh, two two quick things. One, um, a story of a woman who I spoke at a church last Christmas. It was a it was a small gathering of women who just wanted somebody to come and speak to their women's groups. So I said, all right, I'm in. I, I can't even remember the name of the community, but it, it was white. <laughs> with the H. Yes, with the H. And, and these women were, I mean, they were awesome. And it was just a, just a very traditional church. We made baskets and did all the, all the things you do at, at women's gatherings and stuff. Fast forward, here we are now in September. I got an email from one of the women who was there. And she said she'd been watching everything that's been going on and, and during COVID and all of this, this, this unrest that's happening. And she says, my husband and I have found ourselves very blessed in this season. And what I would like to do is I would like to be able to give financially to some African-American organizations or some African-American people who are struggling, but I find I don't know any African-American mm. people. Wow. So will you help me? And I'd have been like, I'm struggling. Well, well, well you know, I, I, I was. I, I actually thought this is the and most. Brian's like kid in college. We're both struggling. I, 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 I thought this is the most awesome woman in the whole world. Yeah. Because so that wasn't offensive to you. Or, no. Because I would be scared to ask. And a she also like that. asked. She said, "Do I call you black or African American?" Hmm. And I wrote her back an email and said, you know, this is African-American, this is black, you're safe if you call me black. If, it, if, if anybody who looks like me, if you call us black, then you're pretty much safe. But this is what you mean when you say African-American, so I explained it to her. And then I, you know, proceeded to give her a couple of organizations and a couple of families that were struggling and stuff. But it was the courage that she had. I, I, I met this woman, I, I met her for what, a minute, yeah. maybe? Mm -hmm. I spoke for, you know, 30 minutes, maybe. But and, she sat under your leadership in a very small know, way, but and, for a time. And then, I'm, and then I was gone, but she, she found my email address from the Imago Dei website, and she did this. Mm. And I thought, this woman, she is officially my hero in this season mm. because she did this. And then I get a call from a friend of mine who runs a nonprofit, and this woman donated like a five-figure donation to his organization and told him it's because I talked to Michelle Jones and I thought to myself, hmm. she, she doesn't, clearly doesn't have any African-American people in her you know, immediate circle or anybody that she knows, but this is what it means to be the church, hmm. right? Wow. It's, it's I'm, I'm not there, but I'm there. And she's not here, but she's here. And so if we, if we do that, mm. that makes all the difference in the world. Mm -hmm. You think uh, your experience might not be my experience, 
My experience might not be yours, but we all add up to something. Mm. And until and unless we realize that and remember that, we're, we're going to struggle. At Imago, we are Im, Im, intentionally leaning into, you know, let's, let's see what it looks like, you know, to, to actually lean into the importance of, of diversity mm-hmm. and, and all of this stuff. And most of you all know that we have that mural up on the outside of our, our church. I don't know if I told you about that, Brian. But somebody actually and it's not came. drive by, so it'd be yeah. You got to drive by. Somebody tagged our building with Black Lives Matter, and it became a discussion on our on our staff bulletin board. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, you know, it'd be really cool if we could if we could just make that into a piece of art. And so somebody said, yeah, we should ask ask Heidi because Heidi's an artist. And so I'm thinking, well, first we got to ask Rick, and then we got to ask Heidi. If Heidi's down, then and Rick's down, then why not? We can do this, right? So I call Rick. Rick says, yeah. And he, he doesn't even hesitate. He says, yes, it can be a gift of truth to our community hmm. wow. and a memorial. And, wow. and then I call Heidi. Heidi says, I would love to do that. So we have this, this instead of painting over Black Lives Matter, instead of mm. painting over the thing that we, that's what we typically do when the building gets tagged. Right. It is now this amazing piece of art, but it has all of the names of people who have died either by police brutality or white supremacy or, you know, just as many as we could put on the wall because there are so many more names than yeah. there are bricks on that wall yeah. to be able to put the names. But the, the last thing that I will say is that one of the parents at our church has two kids, and she brought those kids. They painted names on the wall. They were encouraged to, and they did, go home, look up the stories of the people who were attached to those names. And her son said to her, how come there are so many names on that wall? And his mother had to tell him, she said, I had a hard, good conversation with my kids about the fact that there are so many more names than there are bricks on that wall. and. And she, she just talked to them, and yeah. they looked at the story. And what happened, what I think we have to remember in all of this is that there are human beings attached to our behavior, yeah. human beings attached to the change that happens in our minds, human beings attached to, to, to our learning, you know, with Colin's friend too. There are human beings attached to those deaths, there are mothers and sons and fathers and there are people attached to that. So when somebody, I had somebody come up to me while I was helping paint that wall and started to talk about looting and, and destruction of property and things and I just directed their attention to the wall and I said, read the names, just read the names. Just read the names. Mm. And, and you don't have to align yourself with Black Lives Matter to say Black Lives Matter. Right. They matter. Mm-hmm. And somebody should have said it in 1619. Yes. Somebody should have said it during Jim Crow. Somebody should have said it. You know, and that's all that was being said during the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. And if we're willing as the church to, to, to tell the truth, you know, to engage in some, you know, Vergangenheit Bewaltigung and, and come, to, come to grips yes. with, with the truth... I think it makes all the difference in the world. In the world. Well, thank you so much. Can we just give a warm thank you? Please.
president. That's all I have to say.